Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello, and uh, welcome to CIO Talk Network. To learn more about the show, please visit ciotalknetwork.com. Today's topic is keeping higher education viable through technology. So we have quite a bit going on in different industries with COVID and even otherwise the business is shifting like this. There is no end to it. But at the same time, we have had some specific patterns we saw in higher education. The enrollments are not the same and they are falling. Students complain about increasing debts. The state funding is being cut. The world ranking in education in the United States compared to the rest of the world, it's lowering. There are students who would join, but they would not complete their degrees. These are just some of the areas in which higher education is is struggling. Is it self-inflicted? Is it systemic? Is it something that we can work on? To discuss this, I have Jack Seuss, Vice President of IT and CIO, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Hey, Jack, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Great to have you. And we have Jonathan Pearsall, Associate Vice President and Chief Information Officer with Howard University. Hey, Jonathan, how's life? Great, how are you? Good, good. So, Jack, let's talk about the challenges. I literally gave, what, five, seven challenges, which could be unnerving for any industry. It's like almost, you. it sounds like an implosion. So let's kind of deconstruct. What are some of, whatever that I, I mentioned, are there any more that I did not count yet in terms of the other challenges? And all of these, let's categorize them if they are systemic, out of your control or a business's control, or are they self-inflicted? Well, I, I think that you have hit most of the key challenges. I, I would say that right now, though, um, COVID is clearly the challenge that we don't exactly know what's going to happen to higher ed. And a lot of it is going to depend at the end of the day on how long um, the pandemic runs its course, when we have a vaccine, when we can resume back to normal operations. Um, But in terms of the systemic issues, I think one of the things that I would would press on is is that while you highlighted the decrease in um, enrollments, one of the positives that's taking place is is that um, I was looking at data today uh, from uh, the National Council on Education Statistics. We've been seeing Um, actually improvements in degree completions. We've been seeing um, the number of faculty that exist. This is at least 2017 data is at the highest it's been all time. Um, Many universities are still doing quite well. The drop that we've seen in students is about four or 500,000 from the 2010 timeframe. But we normally see a decrease to some degree in enrollments 
during periods of very low unemployment. You know, that just when the job market is exceptionally hot, one of the options to students is, you know, maybe I'll work because I've now got somebody competing for me and I'll go back to school either part time or at a later date. And so we see a lot of this sort of in and out of the educational marketplace during really tight labor markets. It'll be interesting to see what the results are uh, in one or two years given you know the impact of the recession now and what this is going to mean as we look at the labor market over the next few years so jonathan when you look at this environment that we are in how uh, chronic is it is it do you see this you know it's it's an ebb and flow or is it uh, very specific to an incident like in this case a disruption like covid or for the most part, these things have been happening and we have been taking them as, as business as usual and kind of living with it. Or we have been working on it and we have been not able to solve them to the degree we'd like. Now, I think uh, I do agree with Jack in terms of the statistics of graduation rates and enrollments uh, being down. Um, COVID is definitely a unique incidence where most universities are social spaces. Uh, we bring students to these campuses, we build up these campuses so they have this environment to interact and network both with our scholars as well as with each other. Uh, so certainly this is a, a massive speed bump in, in higher education enrollments and in the, the program laid out by our executives. Um, but we have an opportunity to get around it through technology. And that's, I think, what most people are doing. Most universities have moved online as quickly as they could. Uh, I will say I've talked to some of my colleagues in for-profit universities where they're kind of basking in the sunlight because they, they built their environments for online, if not 100%, a, a large portion. And so they are sort of leading the way. But the rest of our universities are making the, the change that they need to make to bring students together virtually uh, in lab environments where you really do have to be in the environment. We're bringing our students back for those types of practicums and, and clinical um, coursework and so forth. So I, I see universities rising to the challenge. We've always had challenges and this is just another one of them. It's certainly a massive challenge, uh, but we're rising to the occasion. So Jack, whenever we look at any business, it starts with the customer putting focus on them and not to undermine what our internal customers are, but essentially what we deliver to an outside customer is what keeps us viable. So let's talk about the customer. Would you say is that student who, who comes for education is the customer or is it someone else besides them as well? Well, I, I think it's multidimensional and, and frankly, we hate to think of students just as customers because they're also learners. And there's a difference between being a customer and being a learner in the sense that uh, learners don't always get everything they want. If they did, they'd all get A's. Um, you know, we need to be assessing how students are learning. We need to be working with them. We need to be critiquing. We need to be helping. Um, and so there's a different relationship than what you would traditionally see in a, in a true customer uh, model that would be there for higher ed. And I think that gets back even almost 
to your first question. I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I'm at a public research university in Maryland. Um, it's obviously a not-for-profit because it's a, it's part of the state. Howard's a not-for-profit. Uh, we have a bigger mission than just fulfilling our customers' desires, but it's also serving the mission of our states or our regions or why we were created in the first place. And I think that piece of the puzzle is one that can sometimes get lost when you start to be saying, well, it's just about the customer, the student that's coming through the door. Maybe for for-profit universities, you could be thinking that way. But for, um, for our university, it's a broader context. And so really part of our mission is to be supporting our state of Maryland. It's to be making sure that we really are making a difference in the workforce development, in building out um, the capabilities of our state to have the kind of human capital that can meet the needs that we have to have from either federal agencies or commercial sector to be able to do things um, that benefit the state in general. And so, so there's this multidimensional aspect that comes where when you start to focus on just the student as customer, I think you lose some of the bigger pictures um, because it would be easy to make students happy, just grade them real easy, but that wouldn't necessarily be in society's interest. That's a very interesting response because if I look at the different, you know, uh, the constituents that you mentioned, they are all important. I agree with you. But the customer, I mean, if I were to just kind of confine my definition of customer to just students, and yes, even if they are my customers, I'm not going to give it easy to them, I'm not going to give them all A's. You know, that that's not how we would expect that customer to be treated and or that's not would be the, the source of their satisfaction. But then if you go too wide, right, it's like we, we diluting our focus. That could be the risk when we say we want to make it utopic. We want to please everyone in that process. Nobody's pleased. That becomes the risk. So, so Jonathan, the way Jack responded and the way I'm putting a challenge out there, would you, if you were to come in as a turnaround consultant to higher education to make it viable, would you still go and say, I'm going to boil the ocean versus saying, let's fix where the problem could be the most acute one and at least get that same customer, the definition of that customer being just student and attack that. Yeah, obviously our, our students are certainly our prime customer. If you look at a, a university as a business, you pose the question that I'm a consultant trying to turn around higher education. So I'm going to go down that line, but Jack's right. Universities are not a, a, a business. It is, it is more than that, but Yes, students are our prime customers, and I would offer that their parents and families are also our customers. Our undergrad students, their parents are as involved in their admissions process as they are, even though these are young adults who are legally able to do most of the signing and, and, and come to higher education, and we treat them as adults, but their parents are very much an engaged part of that. And so if I'm turning around higher education, our focus has to be on the education, obviously. Uh, our focus has to be on the facility and the technology to ensure that they're connected and that they can do the things that 
they need to do. All of their studies and their their learning all can happen with technology, all can happen in the classroom. Um, and of course, the institution has to maintain itself. And so that's where we get into the business side, making sure the budgets are appropriate, making sure our faculty are, are uh, equipped properly to ensure that they can develop and deliver higher education learning in the 20th century, uh, in the 21st century, rather. So yes, the customer has to be the student, uh, but there are, there are these connecting uh, relationships and affiliations that you also have to manage in a university. So, Jack, coming to you, um, so so yes, customer is the student, and, and your point is also well taken, Jack, that we have got to look at other constituents too. So, But just to focus the conversation on the students first, what do they want? Besides, of course, grade A without working or, or studying, right? Well, I, you know, I, I find that students actually really want a thriving community. So, so both of our institutions are um, highly residential, meaning we, we often would have, you know, at least at my campus, it's, it's roughly, we have about 4,500 students who live on campus. There's probably another 4,000 of the 13,000 who live immediately around campus. Um, we expect to be creating this uh, community where people are interacting, they're learning, they're learning in the classroom, but they're also working in activities outside of the classroom that excite them. You know, sometimes it might be things like the um, cyber defense group. There's a group that has contests for capture the flag or defending. You know, this is a club that has 200 members, or maybe it's the gaming club, or maybe it's a group that's passionate about serving uh, people in need in some way. And so there's all these different sort of ways that allow students to be able to explore um, what's meaningful in their life and try to begin finding that. And so a big part of, I think, what makes what what students want is they want to be able to have an experience in this 18 to 24 year old period where they can generally be um, finding what their interests are, learning to work with diverse people, and really being able to um, understand what they can accomplish. Now, one of the challenges that is really there that I think is, is one that you alluded to early on is the fact that colleges now cost more. And so for a lot of students, they have to be working. Um, and that becomes a bit of a problem with how do you fit uh, a part-time work schedule in with being able to take classes and do all the things that you need to do. What we've been trying to do at my institution is try to think about how you can work with students so that they can be getting internships or other jobs by their sophomore year that they're able to be both earning and learning. Because getting that kind of experience and something that you're interested in from the workplace really complements what you're learning on campus as well. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Jonathan, when we come back, since this is CIO Talk Network, we should talk technology. So all the challenges we spoke about so far, whether for the constituents or for the students, the main customer that we are talking about, how can technology help? in understanding what's going wrong, what do they want, 
at what point do they want it, and then see if the, we can come up with some solutions through technology or at least make it as an aid so it gives us the insight so we can bring in the solutions. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Jonathan, we have to talk technology now, given that to some degree we outline what the challenges are, which our customers are facing, or perhaps there are certain things they want. So where can technology come to help? Uh, so when I talk to students, and I do I do in a couple of ways, I talk to students in an annual survey, and then I meet with student groups quarterly to find out whether technology is serving them well. And several of the things that they tell us is one, they want the entire administration of the university to be digital. Uh, they want it to come to them versus them coming to us. In other words, uh, if you think of uh, a service like TurboTax, they would love it that if everything is sort of checked off for you, you provide the documents, you provide whatever you need to provide to the institution, and they can continue to do things, as Jack talked about, work or be out on the, on the lawn if they need to. And so they want everything to be automated. Uh, another area is they want their learning and their professors to adopt technology faster. Our students are on Instagram. They're on uh, chat uh, applications. They use Zoom and, and other technology systems like that all the time in their daily lives. But when they come to our institution, sometimes they find that, that is, that's hindered from them. And so they would love for all of our administrative systems, our learning systems, all to be online and use the mediums that they use, such as Instagram and Facebook and similar types of, of applications. And they would love it if our faculty would evolve to use those more in the classroom and not just as a means of communication. So, Jack, what have you tried in this regard? You know, customers would come with their wants and the needs and the pain areas which they want us to help address. To what degree have you been able to leverage technology to do it? And what were the learnings and the results when you tried it? Well, one of the things that I like to talk about with different groups on campus is what I call the um, Amazonification uh, and it's five trends driving technology. And so the five things that I've identified is um, what I call me, me, me. And it's really about personal, personalization. And so one of the real things that we've tried to focus on in the personalization piece is the user experience. We have a, our own portal that we've built out um, using a, a technology called Ruby on Rails, 
But the idea is it's a one stop for everything, that we're really trying to be making this be the way that students interact with the university and that they do it as easy as possible. And that we're also thinking about how we can anticipate questions and issues that they're going to have and make things be readily available for them. And so how you're thinking about the user experience is one of the things that's there. The other pieces that um, really come in is, is thinking about, you know, what I call data to information to decisions. You know, and one of the pieces that we're trying to look at is, is um, a lot of times we, we've built out fairly robust uh, analytics tools. We've built out lots of other um, things where we've been able to glean information. Um, we have some predictive tools around risk for certain students or how they may do in a class. And what we're trying to do is make sure that we can get that data to the right person at the right time, not make somebody think, oh, I've got to go to this uh, business intelligent dashboard and find that information. It should be built into advising systems and other tools that you're using on a day-to-day -day basis so that you're able to be getting the kind of information that you need to be able to help students. And then back to what Jonathan's saying. I mean, when you talk to students, they, you know, I, I joke, they want easy, easier, easiest. They really expect high standards for ease of use. If we have clunky, hard to use systems, that isn't the experience that they're used to having in their day-to-day -day lives. And so we have to be thinking through how we can make that better. So Jonathan, when um, we are looking at the educational institutions in the United States and comparing them to the rest of the world, we know Traditionally, we have topped the charts, but that's dwindling. Is that something which is sociopolitical or is this something we should embrace or rather accept as a feedback as a direct result of us allowing the quality of education to degrade? What, what's the benchmark? What's the parameters based on which this whole global ranking is uh, based on and why is it going down when we were at the top earlier? No, I think it has very much to do with the social political climate in the United States. Uh, it, you have to have the investment uh, from the top. You have to have investment from the government to put out those grants and put out those sponsored researches uh, in order for universities to respond. Uh, I think we're in a climate where, while I don't think it's the norm, you have politicians encouraging young people that maybe college isn't for them. Now, luckily, the masses have not responded uh, the way the target was trying to get them to respond, but it does it does affect some students. I can tell you, I have a, a young son at the age of college, and and he's making decisions uh, now. I certainly have to come in and guide him, <laughs> but I think all of our parents are trying to help our young people make that decision: is college for you? And so, if you if you have a, a lower level of uh, interest in universities, and you have a political climate where we're putting our emphasis in other things, then certainly you you can have an opportunity to fall in the rankings. Uh, every one of the economies that have surpassed us have politically uh, put an interest in higher education and that has meant their investments have changed. It meant their, their interest has changed in terms of their students. And so they have moved ahead. And so and when, you know, when we get back to that point, 
I think we could propel ourselves ahead again. It's not the system. Uh, universities are well equipped and well ready to do the research and to teach our young people. Um, but they have to be funded. You have to have funding at the federal level. You have to have funding at the state level. You have to have more research coming in. And over the last five or six years, we've, you know, this has started to fall as so naturally our numbers have fallen. So Jack, would you say if any business is cash trapped, would they let the quality degrade? Because, well, partially you could say, okay, less research is happening, but is that the only parameter someone would say is causing a given university system to degrade in terms of what they impart to the students? You know, I, I think that it's very rare that faculty are going to allow the quality of the education experience to degrade. Faculty... I have seen are highly committed to their institution and to the quality standards. They, it's part and parcel of their identity. And, you know, your question earlier, what, where I was going to say, and, and also add to what Jonathan was, was talking about, is there's a huge international question that's there. I mean, what, what drove the United States you know, if you went back 25 years ago, you would have said 15 of the top 20 institutions are U.S. institutions. I looked today, and it's 10. Um, now, that's still pretty good. 10 of the top 20 are U.S. institutions. I think the top four are U.S. institutions, or at least the top three were. Um, but what it says is, is that we've seen a dramatic increase in the U.K. We've seen it... Um, Canada make lots of inroads. We've seen Australia make great inroads. And the reason that they've done this is because um, we have been unreceptive to foreign students. Um, the reality is that a lot of the very best students in the world are from outside the United States. And if we're not allowing them to come here for graduate degrees, we're really hurting ourselves because often they've been the engines of innovation for future companies that you find, um, whether it's Silicon Valley, medicine, et cetera. And so I think that's one of the areas where if we can see a change in that, where we're more welcoming, you'll begin to see, because what makes the United States appealing is this integration of our economy with higher ed, where you can come here, have great ideas, go off, create great companies, and really do well. And so I, I think that's still the piece that um, is best in the United States. I would add, Jack, that it, that's one of the challenges for us as the CIOs, and then I talked to, the, talk to my executives about this, is that that's where we need the AI, and that's where we need the business intelligence to broaden the markets. I can tell you my institution, we have fairly, we have an international student body and we want to expand that. And I want to build systems that allows them to, to look at those students, look at those prospects internationally and globally and, and pick the best of the brightest from everywhere around the world. And I can tell you, we have a limitation in that. We certainly do get a lot of international students. Howard has a really good international reputation, but I don't have the ability to put data in front of my executives to say, here's all of the students that you could be possibly courting and here's the data about them. So that is, that is an area that we want to move into as quickly as we can. So Jonathan, what you're saying is if I could crank out some, you know, 
data machine, if you will, and that allows you to put things in front of the stakeholders, which in turn will have them fight harder for those dollars or anything that we have to do to get us back in terms of of our ratings. Mm -hmm. That's one, I would say, uh, you know, one one, uh, ammunition, if you will, that you can use. Absolutely. So, oh, and, and, and so, so like keeping that there, Jack, what else would you have brought to the table to say, folks, we have a job to do. We cannot keep sitting here and allowing this thing to dwindle in terms of the ranking. And, and there are certain things socially and politically which we cannot truly control. But in our system, in our university, these are some of the things which we can do with or without technology to fight this battle at our level, at least? It's a great question. I think one of the interesting things that we have to be helping to support is the idea of how to take the research that we're doing and be able to talk about that research in a variety of formats. You know, all too often in the academic world, um, there's a premier set of journals. And, and so one of the goals is clearly to be publishing in those premier sets of journals. The reality is that um, the people reading those premier sets of journals are other academics. Um, if you want to begin changing the publicity model of your university, you have to be thinking about also how do you take some of this incredible research and have ways of of getting it promoted in social media, using ways where you're taking advantage of video or other mechanisms to be able to sort of relate what you're doing. This is how you can sort of think about a marketing effort to be attracting students from all over the world, including the U.S., to want to come to your institution to be a part of that learning experience and that research. And I think that's a unique piece that if I could be really working on one project to be trying to aim as to how do you think about this, it's the fact that we in higher ed probably have to begin figuring out how we can talk about what we're doing more broadly to many different constituents and explain the value better. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back after these messages. And then let's talk about the situation with the student loans. Student, when they come in, they come with a lot of excitement. But when they see the bill, my own son is in in, uh, the second year in college. And when I look at it, maybe I say I will have one less Starbucks a day so that I can pay for it. Not the greatest situation when it comes to the amount of loan that they are going to pile up. Can technology help? And is there the the higher loans that they have or the cost of the higher education? Is that because we are not as efficient? Are we not running academia as a lean machine? This whole academic institution business, if you will. Where is technology able to help identify inefficiencies and help address them so that education becomes more affordable to the students and that would lead to hopefully more students graduating? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and discuss. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Jonathan, we know that higher education is one of the most Uh, It's the costliest, for that matter, in the United States compared to other countries. And we know that students want to get their degrees so that they can get a good job and a good life ahead. But then the loans they pile up literally stay with them for decades. Now, if you were to take a step back and look at why there is so much money involved and why are we taking so much from the students, is it that we are running uh, a rather bloated shop and, and not having a lot of inefficiencies in our system or there's something else. And if at all there are inefficiencies or if at all there are other reasons why it is so expensive, where can technology help and make it more affordable? Yeah, I think universities are expensive for several reasons. One, you're talking about a person, and I'm talking about a faculty member, you, you have a person who has excelled in their field and have done amazing research and we've courted them and brought them to the university in order for them to, to share that knowledge with our students. So anytime, any business, and if you look at corporate America, anytime you have a high, uh, you have a, a, a lot of people involved in delivering your product, of course, that's going to be more expensive. Uh, for our students, we are trying to give them an opportunity to be whatever they want to be in life. So that that is an expensive undertaking. Are there inefficiencies in universities? I'm sure the CFOs are looking for those as we speak and going after those inefficiencies. Um, technology can help. Technology can make some of our administrative processes easier. They can be done with computers as opposed to people. Uh, People would be certainly the quality control experts as opposed to the doers. So I think back to the the automotive industry in the early days of Ford and, and, and GM, where we were using machinery to move the pieces through the assembly line. And if you look at it today, we're using computers and we're using machinery to do the work and the people are the quality control experts. I see us needing to do that in some of our business processes, at least in my university and probably others, where we need to use the computers more effectively to do the work as opposed to just moving the widgets to us. Um, So yeah, there are opportunities for technology to help. Um, but anytime you're going to have a people business like learning, um, you're going to have some cost involved, and that cost is obviously borne by by our students. So, Jack, if you had a choice to fix this problem, whether at policy level or at the way the whole PNL is calculated in an educational institution, and eventually 
use technology because that's the main that you have in your arsenal. How would you have gone about fixing this uh, exorbitant price of education and then subsequently students carrying the load for many decades after they graduate? So I think there's there's a couple of key things that we should be thinking about. And, and part of this is the fact that one, we've allowed this decision to be made often by 18-year-olds for not very good reasons. And this is one where parents, I think, really need to be having a conversation with their child uh, to be understanding what they can afford, what the child wants to do. No, all too often, you know, I think I, I see students picking um, college X that's out of state, even though um, an in-state school might have better programs in a particular area. They just want to go out of state because the football team is better out of state or whatever that may be. And, and there's something to be said for good football teams. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I can say UMBC doesn't have a football team. So I, I'm not, I don't have anything in this game. But we end up in a situation where students make decisions of where they're going to go to college for reasons which are hard to predict. Uh, and so that's one issue that probably we need to be having more conversation with parents and children earlier around what should be the right expectations. But to answer your question around cost, What's really key, I think, is thinking about the education, not as college only, but it's really about the high school and college. You know, my children ended up, um, both of them ended up taking a lot of advanced placement courses in high school. My oldest son had 32 credits, so he was basically a sophomore. He ended up finishing his engineering degree in three and a half years. Um, my other son um, finished in four years, 150 credits in uh, two different programs in a business program because he went in with 24 credits and he took some summer classes. This idea of how you can bring classes in to college is a great way of lowering the cost of college if you can use AP courses. In the state of Maryland, um, we're allowing high school students to go in and take courses while they're in high school at the community college free of charge. You can then transfer those credits into higher education. I, I was talking to a young lady last spring who was applying to UMBC. She was transferring 54 credits into our campus. That's almost the first two years. These kinds of innovative ways or I think how we're going to have to be addressing some of the cost pressures. There isn't going to be a magic wand where technology is going to magically lower the cost by 25% um, or 30% in the cost of education because it's mostly people-oriented, and it's hard to lower the cost of people-oriented services. We've seen that in medicine, and, we're now seeing, and we know that's the truth in education. So, Jack, what you just mentioned is, of course, a, a great example of how you could have most of the credits taken for free or at a lesser cost at a community college or even during high school. Now, all of that said, there is also a parallel business side to it, which causes many universities, not always public or state universities, but other higher educational institutions who actually would say, I don't honor those credits that you got elsewhere. So you've got to take it here because they're trying to maximize 
per student lifetime value they get out of them. And that's in direct contrast to the altruistic approach that you mentioned should be taken. And there's no one stopping them either. What would you say to that? <laughs> That's a tough one. For, it, <clears throat> what I would say on that is that in the other way to think about that, and, and I'll pick, it, it's easy to pick on Harvard. The reality though is Harvard could charge almost any amount and fill its class. It's got a brand recognition. You know, it's the extreme side of this. Um, Harvard does very much with financial aid. Um, many of the elite schools are doing a lot with trying to make sure that um, they're keeping college affordable. And, and I put that a little bit in air quotes because certainly it's expensive. But the reality is, is that it, you have options. So if you are choosing to go to a school that won't accept credits from other entities, well, instead of going there, choose schools that will accept those credits. If you begin seeing, when schools see that they're going to lose enrollments, they'll change some of their practices. Um, and this is one of the ways that um, people can begin to influence practices that are there. So Jonathan, coming back to you, if you were to really go and dig in to try to fix this problem of inefficiencies? Are there very specific candidates if you'd go surgical? Yeah, I think, um, I think the general education is a good place for universities to think about finding ways to lower those costs. Uh, the example we used earlier was students transferring credits in that they've gone to community colleges or other institutions whether it be online or what have you, and then transfer those into the universities they want to go to. If those universities have a lower cost for those courses and perhaps a higher cost for the major courses uh, that puts you into your career, that could bring them those students back. Uh, I know a lot of parents that talk about sending their students to community colleges, even though they have aspirations for these wonderful four-year institutions, they're trying to save money and they're trying to keep the economics at a level that they don't have to mortgage the house. And so if universities take that into account, uh, our four-year institutions take that into account and lower those general ed courses, put them online, perhaps use technology to deliver those courses, um, that could help keep those students in their, um, you know, in their ranks. How about I, the, the business side to, of the... Yeah, go ahead, Jack. I want to just add something to what Jonathan's saying, because I think that one of the pieces that we can do with technology that can really make a difference is help guide students in the optimal path to get through the university. You know, one of our challenges that, that we see, at least at, at my institution, is students are trying to major in two or three different programs. You know, I'm a math major, computer science major, and I want to minor in something else. The reality is, is getting multiple bat, you know, degrees really isn't that useful. And it can often cause you to add an extra semester or year to your time in college. You know, you should be trying to focus on how you can maximize and quickly um, get through college in the optimal way. 
And that, I think, is one of the things that we can give them better systems for showing, you know, here's how you can better uh, take courses to be able to be aligned to get out sooner. So coming back to you, Jonathan, if we look at the business side of education, so one was the academic side where how would you get your courses elsewhere to reduce that cost for the student? But there is also other costs of operations within an academic institution. Would you see some specific candidates where you could directly start digging deeper and you'll inevitably find some places to trim some fat? Yeah, I, I think we have lots of opportunities. I mean, just maintaining a university's facility is, is really costly. And certainly the older the facility, the more historic they are, the more they cost because you have to modernize them and make sure that we, we are up to code and things like that. It's just a large undertaking um, with campuses and that's just the nature of having a campus. Um, but they're also amazing landmarks and they're also amazing house uh, vessels for history. And so you have to maintain them. That is just the nature of universities. Um, we have large payrolls in universities to with faculty and staff. Um, and so they're just, it's just a balancing act. I take my hat off to our CFO to keep everything running and to move forward because our presidents are visionaries and our, our deans and our, our provosts are visionaries. And so they're moving the universities forward. Um, and so trying to trim the fat while still maintaining services, um, I'm sure CIOs and CFOs and, and all the other leaders in universities are trying to do more with less. Um, there's, there's really no one area if you're not, because if you trim, you can't trim off a limb if you would, uh, and, and not do something because all of it is necessary. All you have to feed the students while they're there. You have to house the students while they're there. You have to provide classroom space. You have to provide systems to ensure that their, their records are straight and that the data that we need to make good decisions is there. Uh, and so we try to use as much technology as we can. Um, in our facilities area, uh, I can tell you that our facilities teams are do everything they can to keep these campuses beautiful and, and something because they are also part of our, our marketing. When students and their families come to our campuses, they make some of their decisions by what they see. Even though they've never met a professor, they've never seen a book yet, they pick these universities, as Jack said, through their athletic programs, but also on the campus. And they look at the campus and say, yes, this is where I want to be. Um, and so it's it's difficult to not do some of the things that we do um, because it also will have a, a bottom line effect on our students and ultimately the revenue that we bring in. So, uh, Jack, when we look at, of course, you know, we have looked at different ways to try to make higher education viable and we can look at things which are in front of us, obvious ones. But there are a lot of things which are connected to the people and the culture and the underlying age-old processes sometimes, which if we don't tackle or for fundamentally rethink, we would have a tough time dealing with it. So in, in two minutes or less, what would be your concise playbook to look through them and optimize them? Well, I think one of the interesting things to me has been how much we have redone business processes and mechanisms in the COVID world. So within, within a week, we moved all of our courses online. Within two weeks, we had moved um, all of our business processes online. Um, we're really 
seeing that we can do a lot more with remote work um, than we had ever done in the past. We've made dramatic changes. And I think this ability to show that we could use technology effectively, that it could be deployed. I'm not saying it went without any pain whatsoever, but normally we would not move anywhere near this fast. And so I think the, the, what COVID has done is it has forced us to adopt technology very fast, but we'll have some long-term benefits that come out of this. And that really makes me optimistic that we'll be able to be thinking more strategically about how we use technology because everyone on the campus has had to lift their game in what they're using technology for now. And I think they're much more comfortable with thinking about how technology can play a role going forward. 30 seconds or less. Jonathan, if you had to fix yourself as a leader so that you do better towards helping health, uh, the, the higher education become more viable, being the higher education leader yourself, what would be that one thing you will fix? Uh, I think it's awareness. It's fixing awareness. And as Jack mentioned, we have moved uh, a yeoman's effort to bring universities that were not online. I can tell you my university was completely of the brick and mortar. You need to come here to Washington mindset. And now we have completely turned that 180 degrees where more is possible. And so the CIO's role is to make every department and every faculty member uh, aware of what the possibilities are and leverage these uh, technology assets so that we can reduce costs, so that we can do things more efficiently, and so that we can be more effective at what we do. Thanks once again. So please connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Pinterest, and subscribe to our podcasts on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, and many other channels that you can find where you listen to the podcasts. Once again, thank you for listening to CTN. This is Sanjog All, your show host. Please stay tuned for next week. Take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.